Well, I am, I am very grateful to have the pulpit, although this one isn't as big as the ones I'm used to. I can't quite hide behind it, you know, if I say something, I can't duck away from what you'll throw at me. Um, it is interesting. Uh, I always love being able to preach one of these, like, standalone sermons or a time to just come and um, be with you guys, and it's, it's funny because I really can't lose because uh, if the Lord preaches through me and, and you hear a phenomenal sermon and you, are, you leave here edified and, and God's work has been done, then praise God. Um, if I do poorly, then you all leave here thinking, wow, we are so thankful we have Jordan. Um, and it sets him up for the next week. So it works out really, really well. Um, so my name is Stephen. I am the youth pastor down at our Spirit Lake campus. And... Um, I am involved not near as much as I want to be, but in some events up here, I know some of you from some of our um, high school trips, like Impact and different things like that, but I'm excited to see a bunch of people I don't know. Um, this is really cool. I love seeing a lot of faces that I don't recognize, and uh, I hope to get a chance to meet you. I get a chance to, to say hi to you um, while I'm down here, or uh, avoid your gaze, again, depending on how this goes. So... Um, in, given an opportunity to, to preach something kind of, kind of different, just to kind of give you a bit of a break from uh, being in one book for a long time, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what would God have me bring you, and what would the Lord have us do, and, and instead of even going through just one particular passage, instead of even going through just one particular book, I, just, I want to introduce you guys to a friend. I want to introduce you to someone who's a, a near and dear friend of mine. He's someone I've learned probably the most about the Christian life through. It's someone who has written some of the most easy to understand, uh, accessible, even at times most memorized things that we've read. And he's also written some of the most confusing, never read, or most often debated things that you can read. And you're probably wondering, who on earth am I talking about who has written so many things and has taught me the most? His name's John. And I love John. John is a good friend of mine. He and I hang out a lot, and you're going to see why. And I want, you to, I want you to see why I love John so much. And we don't really know a last name, um, unless we want to be a little awkward and call him uh, Zebedeeson, or son of Zebedee. We just understand that that was his dad. We know that he had a brother. And, and John is just one of these interesting characters that I hope you get a chance to, to enjoy as much as I do as we talk about him. We know that he wrote four books, and then we're pretty sure he actually wrote all five of the books that are attributed to him. And I say that because people, ever since the, the book of the Bible came together, people have debated on like, was it really this John? John's a pretty common name. Maybe it was another John. Maybe John the Apostle was one person. John the Elder was another person. And then Revelation was just some other dude way off in there. I am fully confident that John actually wrote all five of the books. And how we understand that and how we know this um, comes from a lot of just internal evidence from the Bible. And as I introduce you to this guy, I want to make sure we're all talking about the same person. So I want to talk about how we know that John actually wrote the books that are attributed to him. He's called the beloved disciple. He's called the, the one Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. But interestingly, there's actually in John eleven three another person named that. So this has caused a little bit of that, that misunderstanding on who John is. A man named Lazarus, who Jesus ended up raising from the dead, was also referred to as a disciple whom you love when Martha comes to tell Jesus that he had died. So some have suggested, oh, maybe Lazarus wrote these books. But 
it doesn't make sense as much because Lazarus would have had to have been present at a lot of things that really no one else was present for. So we can pretty much rule out that Lazarus wrote these books because there were a lot of things recorded that would not have been known to anyone except for maybe the inner three disciples in Jesus's, like Jesus's closest disciples. Now we know that this author would have had to have been very close to Jesus and personally witnessed all he wrote about from John 21.4 when he says very clearly, I have seen these things and I write them down to you. We also know that this person who wrote them would have had to have breakfast with the risen Christ. How awesome would that be? I love breakfast meetings anyway, but like to be able to sit down, have Jesus cook you fish and like be able to talk to him after you had seen him killed and now he's alive. I just, I could not imagine what would go through my mind to be able to do that. Um, but we know that in John 21, 7 through 20. So this points to somebody. It would have either had to have been Peter or it would have had to have been either John or James, the two sons of Zebedee. Now, it couldn't have been James because Acts 12, 1 through 2 tells us that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And unfortunately, he says he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So this means that James would have been martyred way before he would have been able to write any of these books. Now, it also couldn't have been Peter because of one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And this is going to give you just a great idea of who John is. We see this in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 3 through 8. It says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So unless John beat himself in a foot race and then bragged about it a couple of times, like seriously, I love this. John talks about beating Peter to the tomb three times. He's like, I was there first. He got there before me, but then he, like I got there first and then he followed me and then looked in. And oh, by the way, the disciple who got there first yeah, me? Yeah, I went in, and then I looked, and I saw stuff. And if he, it would have to be John who wrote these letters, because I don't feel like anybody else would, like, brag on somebody else like that. If it was Peter, unless he was just really trying to process through the loss of having John beat him so badly in this foot race, probably wouldn't have written that. But you get, like, this idea that John is just this lovable, really fired up, passionate guy. And he's kind of a goofball, and sometimes he might have a little bit of arrogance. It's funny because Peter kind of overshadows him in that department. As we see, there's a lot of times where Peter has foot and mouth disease. We're constantly putting his foot in his mouth, wishing he hadn't have said things. John's just kind of sitting in the back. But it's fun to see John throw some of those things in there, talking about how he, you know, beat Peter in a foot race so many times. But we also see in John this incredible maturity. We also see something in him that Jesus must have seen. Because I don't know if you knew this, but tradition holds that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at John and commissioned Mary, Jesus' mother, into the care of John. And he said, John, this is your mother. Care for her. And tradition holds that he took care of Mary for the rest of her life. He took her into his home and cared for her. 
And now it's interesting because we get this, this sense of, of this amazing disciple, this one who knew Jesus personally and, and yet was still so human. He hung out with Jesus regularly, listened to his teaching, and was even one who got to see the miracles of Jesus firsthand. But yet we also see in him incredible humanity. We see in him a, a man who, who cared for the people that Jesus cared for, but we see a, a guy who still had his own struggles. We see somebody who at times maybe was a little too fired up for his own good. Maybe he was a, a little bit of a, a kid. You know, it's funny. We always think of John as this really young, kind of super fired up disciple. And maybe it's because in medieval art, like a lot of us know the, the painting of The Last Supper by da Vinci, that he's always shown as very young. And he's beardless, and, and he seems like this, this young dude. And I don't know about you guys, but when I look at his book, sometimes that's the voice that's in my head. That's the one that I'm thinking about is, oh, this was written by a really young guy. This was written by somebody who still has the whole of his life left ahead of him. Maybe that's why some of his love of Jesus comes out of almost a naivety. Or maybe out of a, an idea that the, the life may, maybe hasn't been as hard for him as it could be. But that's probably how Jesus looked while he was with Jesus. The John that actually wrote the books was, was quite different. This John went through incredible difficulty. This John went through incredible hardship. This John, who speaks of Jesus' love as if Jesus was still standing there with him, is one who experienced pain and suffering for being a Christian. Beyond that, many of us hopefully will ever have to experience did you know that all of the disciples of Jesus, the first disciples, including those even later, so not just the 12, but, but those later who wrote different books, were all martyred at a pretty young age? I won't go through the details of all of them, but you can see in history that each one of them was, was killed pretty early. We already heard about James killed pretty early. We see just all of his persecution, and, and they all died at a very young age except John. Now, that's not to say that John wasn't martyred. Tradition holds that John actually survived his martyrdom, survived his execution. Uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, if many of you know him, he has an incredible commentary on um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that I love, and he, he quoted this. He said that we know toward the end of John's life, he dwelled in the city of Ephesus in Western Asia Minor. But sometime in the early 90s, a persecution against the Christians arose under Emperor Domitian who reigned from about AD 81 to AD 96. Now, during this persecution, the Apostle John was arrested and allegedly thrown into boiling oil, from which he was miraculously preserved. As a plan B, John was exiled to the tiny island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, from which he wrote the book of Revelation. After the persecution ended, John returned from exile and continued to minister among the churches of Asia Minor until his death after the crowning of Emperor Trajan, around AD 96. Just let that sink in for a second. He survived his execution. And now after doing some digging, I read that the Romans actually have a law very similar to our double jeopardy, where if a person is tried and convicted for, for a certain crime, they can't be tried and convicted again. So since they actually carried out his sentence, they carried out his execution and he survived, they actually couldn't legally kill him again. Because I've had people wonder, they're like, well, if he survived, like, why didn't they, you know, try something else? Or why didn't they try to kill him in a different way? But he actually, it would be illegal for them to do it. And I love the Romans because, like, as brutal as they were, at least they kept their, to their own laws. I mean, they were like, okay, well, we can't kill him again, so let's just kind of get him out of the way. Let's just exile him somewhere. So they sent him off to this, to this island, and then it was so funny because he even, he survived that. 
And well into his 90s, I mean, this is a long lifespan for anyone, let alone a disciple living back then. Um, They were like, you know what? Fine, you're an old, frail man. You can return home. And what I love is that we see in John that he was so unafraid of the Romans that he continued to preach the same message he always preached, despite having been killed, exiled, and then let go. He had no fear of the Romans. He had no fear of what they could do to him because really everything they could do to him, they did, and God miraculously preserved him. And I think it's something that, I don't know, it's that, that like amazing love of God and that trust of God that I know I need to hear a lot. And I know sometimes it's, it's interesting to read all of what John wrote and be pointed to who he wants to point us to, but it's so amazing to read who he was and why he wrote these things and why God used him in such an amazing way. It gives me such hope. Because there are times where I look at some of these biblical authors and I think, man, I, I could never be like that. I could never have that kind of faith. I could never be that. They must have been these mythic people. Like, it was a whole different day back then. And yet, I tell you, the same Jesus that ministered to John and gave him that confidence is the same Jesus you and I serve. The same Jesus that preserved John from persecution is the same Jesus that we all love and worship today. It's just good to be reminded, and it hopefully gives us a little bit of a fresh lens to read John. So for the remainder of our time together, I really feel like we should just read everything John wrote. Starting in John chapter 1, I'm kidding, we're not going to do that. That takes a long time. Some of you are serious though, you're actually going to your Bibles, and thank you for showing me that kind of trust. I appreciate you a lot. So to get into, to get into the, the meat of the text, one thing that I do want to share though is that John is very much a different kind of thinker than we might be used to. Those of you who are used to reading Paul, those of you who are used to reading even even Peter, Mark, Luke, especially Matthew, definitely, are going to find John being very different. And maybe an illustration will help this. So I'm kind of a different thinker too, and I absolutely love museums. Like, I don't care what museum it is. As long as there's cool stuff on the walls to look at, I'm going to go there. And now, I'm the kind of museum goer, maybe some of you sympathize and seriously listen to this, because it might drive you crazy if you're like this too. But I'm the type where I can spend all day in a museum, and, and my wife actually figured this out when we went to go see some French Impressionist paintings, and I wasn't done with one painting in the amount of time it took for her to go through the exhibit. And I love to go deep. I love to sit and I love to look. And that's part of me being an art nerd, but that's also part of just like how I am in museums. But as much fun as that was, my favorite kind of museums are the ones where you go in and there's no set path. My favorite kind of museums are the ones where you can go in the, the Minneapolis Institute of Art is this way. You walk in, and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, everything is open to you. There are rooms with like every different kind of thing, and, and I'm seriously like a little kid. I'll run into one area, and I'll spend some time there. Like I'll go hang out with the American hyper-realists, and I'll be like, oh, this is so cool. Like, that's a pencil drawing? I can't believe that. And I'm looking at it, and I'm, I'm examining it, and then I'm like, you know what? I need to go hang out with some European surrealists for a bit. And I go downstairs, and I'm hanging out with them, and I'm looking around. And, and it's funny because looking in this area will kind of spark an interest. And then I'll think, wow, I see how they, how they captured a certain form, and they captured this. I'm, Did the hyper-realists do it that way? And then I run back up there, and then I look at those. And I'm like, no, they, don't really, they didn't do it that way, but that's cool. They do it in a different way. And I'm sure this would drive many of you nuts. So seriously, you're probably thinking, I'm never going to go to a museum with him. Stephen never asked me to go to a museum. I'm not going to go. Wow, he must have a really patient and adoring wife. And I do. I really do. Some of you might actually enjoy, you know, you might enjoy that. You might think, wow, he's really fired up. This is neat. But like, 
seriously, sit still. Um, those of you who are like that are probably, you probably like the exhibits that are more, where you have this like set path, where you walk around and you can see everything. Maybe you even get to go to one of those museums that actually has like the little footprints put down on the floor that like guide you around to everything. And like you can see the entire exhibit, you can see the flow, and the only way to get lost or, or to go somewhere where they don't want you to go is to like accidentally take a fire exit or to like accidentally like go through something you weren't supposed to go through. Those of you who like that set path are probably going to be driven crazy by John. John does not follow a set path. John is very much a non-linear thinker. And what you'll notice is that he is much more like me at a museum because he'll spend some time in that God is love section, enjoying it, appreciating it, really having fun with it. And then he'll be like, oh, that reminds me, God is also light. And he runs over here and he hangs out in the God is light section. And he's like, oh, this is so cool. But you know what? I, as I've been talking and as I've been thinking about this, I'm reminded that some of light also equals love. So we're going to go back and we're going to talk about this. And you see that like, he doesn't lay out a logical argument where A flows to B and then results in C. The way he does it is that A tells you one thing about a subject, and then he comes back in, and then he goes into B. B is different from A, but it still connects to this main subject, and then C is way up here, and it's amazing, and he's so fired up about it, and it comes back in, into the section. It's this daisy chain that he does, where he goes in and out of different things, but he ultimately, if you read his entire book, and this is what is hard, because the Gospel of John is arranged this way, but not even close to the way his letters are arranged. First John especially will drive you nuts and you'll have no idea what it's about unless you read it from beginning to end. That's the only way I've been able to really grasp it because if you just read a little part of it, you're like, oh, this is great. It connects back into the subject, but he's touching on things that I don't, I don't know where he's going with this. Where's they can be? And he picks them up way, 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 way later in the, in the end of the book. It can be really hard to follow, but once you kind of understand how John thinks, a lot of what he writes is going to make a lot more sense. And you get this different perspective of, of Jesus and of the Christian life, and you get to see it through his eyes, and I love it. I love that God chose to write through John to give us this, this interesting nonlinear way of thinking that kind of, I don't know, there are times where it feels like a breath of fresh air to me when I've been hanging out too long with Romans or with some of Paul's very, very clear A to B to C to D arguments. And my hope is that this perspective in John that you get will encourage you to read his works. I don't know if you knew this, but 2nd and 3rd John are among the least read books in all of Scripture. It might be because you have to go past them to get to Revelation, and yet Revelation is also one of the less read books, or I should say less understood books. And yet, John's Gospel is one of the most read books. And these are all written by the same guy. I think it can be really interesting for us. Maybe there are books that you just want to cross off your reading plan. Seriously, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you can read all three of them in like not even an hour um, and understand them pretty well. You can tick those off. They're great. They're really easy books to read. Um, but the thing is, I, I know sometimes you start reading in there and when it gets confusing, it's hard to, to jump in. So hopefully, as we continue in our time together, you will get the sense of how John writes and what he has for you. And in talking about just one person, as much as I would love to read just all of his stuff for you, I'll let you guys do that on your own. I do believe that all of his work from John 1 to the end of Revelation can be summed up in four statements. I really believe that John's entire ministry can be summed up in four statements, and those are we're going to explore for the rest of our time together. So let's jump in. You guys ready to jump into John and to hear more about who this awesome guy is? 
His first statement that I really believe sums up the entirety of his work is this. God is love. Therefore, love one another. God is love. Therefore, love one another. It has been said of John that when he was old and frail, keep in mind, just been boiled in oil, or many, many years ago boiled in oil, hung out by himself. And seriously, if he's anything like me, being by himself would have probably been the worst torture. And now he's, he's in his 90s. He's this old man. He would have to be carried everywhere. And I love this. Like, he couldn't even walk, and he would have his students carry him and, like, bring him to teach. And when he'd be carried from place to place to preach, his message was simply this, technion, agape, all alone, which is Greek for little children love one another. Little children love one another. As Jerome, the uh, Christian historian, wrote once, he said, after Hearing this injunction repeatedly, John was asked why he never said anything else. Literally, that's all he would preach. He would be carried up. He would say, little children love one another, and then they would set him back down. That was his sermon. When asked why he never said anything else, he replied, because it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. If all people would do is just love one another, then that would be it. That's all that would need to happen. If you and I, brothers and sisters, would love one another the way Christ loved us, that would be enough in John's mind. In the world, there's not a lot of this kind of love, is there? And I feel like John's message is the same for us. I think it's so interesting because literally what he said is when they said, John, when are you going to tell us to do anything other than love one another? His response was literally, when you love one another. I will stop telling you to do it when you do it. And my friends, I'm so convicted by this because, seriously, my natural inclination a lot of the time is not love. When somebody cuts me off or when they're going way too slow or or when somebody's somehow impeding my progress in driving, my first inclination is not, oh, I love them. I'm so glad they're in my way. Thank you for making me slow down and not be in such a hurry. No, No, who thinks that way? If some of you do, great. I need to learn from you. But loving one another was Jesus' biggest command. He actually summed up the two, like in two laws, the entire 613 laws of the Old Testament and the sum of his ministry. Love God, love your neighbor. And John picks this up and his books are saturated with love. Many of you know that one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture has to do with love. It's John 3.16. If you want to say it with me, you can. That'd be great. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a reason why that is the, song, the uh, verse that is on billboards at sports games still. It's because it is love. It is what God showed to us. But what's interesting is this love doesn't just stay with us. This love doesn't just enter into our lives, change us, and then call it good. This love comes with a command. This love comes with an imperative. It comes with something that you now must do. Jesus says, I have loved you. God is love. Therefore, now you need to love one another. And I I think this is so great. And I don't know if John did this on purpose or if the the translators did this on purpose, but another John 3.16, this one from 1 John, gives us that imperative. You can see 1 John 3.16-18 says this, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives 
for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. There are some of us in here today who need to be reminded of God's love. That right now, exactly as you are, God loves you. I know there's some of you this morning who woke up and looked in the mirror and didn't instantly think I'm loved. Who looked in that mirror and thought of all the things that are wrong with you. Thought of all the reasons maybe that you're not to be loved. Or maybe you haven't earned love. Maybe you're not worthy of love. But my friends, if you know the God I know, if you know the Jesus that John knew personally, you'll know you're loved. Maybe some of you don't know that this morning and I invite you to know that God loves you right now. He loves you so much that even while you were stuck in sin and and as an enemy of God, he sent his son to die in your place on your behalf so that you could be reconciled with him. He did it all. Now there's some others of us in here who maybe embrace this with all we have and yet maybe you need that little extra encouragement to love others. What does this love look like when you bring it to other people? God laid down his life for us. How can we lay down our lives for others? Keep this in mind. Jesus set aside his comfort in heaven. All of his privilege that was afforded to him as a member of the Trinity, and he gave it all up in order to come down to us. Now, how can you give up some of your comfort? How can you give up some of your privilege to show this love to other people? Some of you are doing this by going down to New Orleans. Some of you are doing this by giving up maybe the one of a couple weeks of vacation that you have to go down and serve other people. That's awesome. Bring the love of Jesus to people who desperately need it through your work, through your skills. I'll be praying for you. Love missions trips. But some of you can do this even in just a small way. Maybe just take a couple extra minutes to engage somebody in conversation. We all have things we need to do. We all have our to-do lists. But sometimes when somebody is hurting and you know it and you see it, I can't tell you how many times I've thought, man, I I know that you need some help right now, but I have stuff I need to do. I've got places I need to be. I'll be praying for you and then I forget or I'll take care of, you know, like maybe we talk later and then we never connect. My friends, take that little extra time. Talk to one another. Engage with one another. Or maybe you go a little further. Maybe you call somebody who you haven't spoken to in a while. I don't know about you, but I have a bunch of phone numbers in my phone of people that I used to know who are good friends of mine who I've never talked to since. It's been years, five even plus years. What would it look like for you to just send a message? Give them a call. Just say, hey, I've just been, th- you know, I was thinking about you. And really, the, th- the thinking about you could just come from, I saw your number in my phone and I've realized I haven't talked to you in five years. How are you doing? How are things? Sometimes God will bring people into your life at random times, who you haven't seen in a long time. And he'll just be like, okay, you want to love people? Here, I'm going to give you somebody who you haven't seen in a long time. Talk to them. Say hi to them. Show them my love. Listen to them. Maybe some of you, maybe it's, it's hard to engage in conversations with one another. I understand that. Maybe you're a lot better with physical labor. And let's face it, you've had numerous opportunities to help people by shoveling their driveway. Maybe there's somebody next door to you who you've noticed, wow, they're... they're their walk has not been shoveled in a long time. I'm going to go over and I'm, I'm going to give them a hand. Or, or you see somebody on the side of the road who, who just needs a little help or, or needs you know, the carpet that you have in the back of your car to get traction. Whatever it looks like. There are so many ways that you can help somebody and it doesn't take time. 
But now maybe some of us need even bigger steps. Maybe God is calling you to go on that missions trip. Maybe God is telling you to use your gifts to serve people who desperately need it. Maybe some of you need to look around your home and look at things that you have been holding on to that you don't use and that you don't need that somebody else desperately can use, desperately can need. What does it look like for you to take those things and give them to somebody who needs them? What is a cause that hits your heart? Find ways to show God's deep love and care for, that he's shown to you to other people. I think you'd be amazed at what God does. God is love. Therefore, love one another. And as if that weren't enough, I disagree with John a little bit. I think that is enough. I think that's a lot of things. But there's so much else in his word. There's so many other things that I just, I want to share with you guys. The next one has to do with truth. God is truth. Therefore, you should guard against false teaching. Now, this one may not seem as practical as showing love to one another. It may not be as, as easy to do for us. But what I find interesting is that it can be argued that all of John's work, everything that he wrote was designed to combat false teaching. His gospel was written to a, in a very specific way. If you really look at it, you really analyze it, it was written in a way to counter this false teaching called Gnosticism. And it was this idea that if you really wanted to love God, if you really wanted to, to be in his good grace, you needed this extra knowledge. And that Jesus didn't reveal you that like other teachers have to reveal to you. And it really made it seem as though Jesus was insufficient. What John did is he wrote everything down in such a way that it shows that Jesus was clear. Everything he taught was exactly what you need for salvation. There is no extra stuff. If all you believe is in what Jesus taught, that's all you need to be saved. False teachers will come in and try to say, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to believe this, you need to do all these other things. And John's like, no, I believe what Jesus taught me. And I bring that to everyone else. And he did that in all of his letters. First John was set up in such a way that uh, was spoken generally to Christians in Ephesus and encourages them to persevere in knowledge that they received at first, to, to counter false teaching, not by acknowledging like what they were teaching, but by just saying, you guys know the gospel. Just remember that. Believe it. It says here in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have even touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. You see, John opens up and says, you already know these things. You already know the gospel. I'm just reminding you of it. And it's funny because then 2 John is even more specific and it's a very specific church. It's not just general Christians in Ephesus. Now it's one church body. And in 2 John 1, 7 through 8, he, he shares this. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. He's saying that a false teacher is as bad as the antichrist. Saying, watch yourself so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. And then even in 3 John, we get even more specific to where it's not even just one church, it's one person. How'd you like that? John wrote a book of the Bible to one person, and now for all of history, that one person is identified this way. He would not welcome, he would welcome in false teachers. He would welcome in those who were preaching a different gospel and show them hospitality, but he would fail to show hospitality to Christians, to others in the group. And even Revelation was written to clear up some false teaching that was around the day that Jesus had already returned and that we missed it. You know, there were some in Thessalonica that were so convinced that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, they just stopped working. 
And kind of around that same time, John gets this vision about Revelation and says, no, if Jesus came, you'd know. Here's a whole bunch of things that are going to happen that are completely different from your normal life. If Jesus comes back, it's going to be pretty obvious. He's not just going to come back secretly, take a whole bunch of people, and then life's going to go on as as you know it. Revelation shows us that it's a pretty, pretty big event when Jesus returns. So all of this shows us of how much John cares about truth, and every one of his books was written to guard against this kind of false teaching. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us right now? What it means is that you need to be on guard against those who lead you astray. My hope and and what I believe John is is teaching us here is is to measure everything that you hear by the truth you already know in Scripture. We are very blessed in following a God who gave us his revealed word in Scripture. A God whose word does not change. A God whose word is truth and by which we should measure all other things we're told. Don't let a bad week or even a bad couple of years take you away from the God you already know and serve. Don't be swayed by emotion or circumstances or new discoveries or anything else that counters what you've heard and received from God. Now, I'm not saying you should take this really cynical attitude and like don't believe anything you hear, especially from people you trust. But be wise in the messages you take in. Be wise about what you believe is truth before even taking it to the word. Be wise in what you hear. Compare it against what you know about God and his word. God is truth, therefore, guard against false teaching. Now, the third thing that John gives us is summed up, actually, in, he does this in all of his writing, but it's summed up in just one verse. What he teaches us and what he writes is that God brought heaven to our world, therefore, bring heaven to your world. In the opening verses of John's gospel, read something pretty fascinating. And it can be easy to go over it, but I want to spend a little bit of time here. In John 1.14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that word dwelt literally means tabernacled. Isn't that fascinating? Probably like, what? I'm going to tell you why it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. Because in the Old Testament, the place where God met with his people, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was inside the temple and was called the tabernacle. This is where God's presence dwelled with humanity. And now the thing is about the tabernacle is that if you wanted to enter this place and you were ritually unclean and you didn't have the blood of an animal sacrifice clothed over you, you would not be able to handle God's holy presence. You would actually die in his presence. I mean, we even have a story in 2 Samuel of a man who touched the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, in a, in a incorrect way. He was actually just even trying to save it from falling off a cart. And just by touching it, God's presence struck him down. You see, it's, it's this, this awe and this reverence that we should have for the presence of God. It was this place that only certain people could go and only if they were given an invitation to do so and if they sacrificed in order to do it. And now we read in John something really interesting. It says, in Jesus, the most holy place where God's presence lived on earth was no longer in a place, it was in a person. Jesus walked from place to place and brought the presence of God there. He brought heaven to earth. And instead of having to give a sacrifice, all we have to do is is allow Jesus to meet him in different ways and, and get into his presence, and now we are in the most holy place. That's why in other parts of Scripture it says that as Christians, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are God's holy presence. 
And it's not because of an animal sacrifice, it's because of the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross that clothes us and allows us into God's presence. And you see this everywhere in John's writings. You see in John 4 when there was a woman who was so desperate for heaven on earth. It was this woman who had been shunned by everyone around her. Her her deeds and and, uh, relations with men were known to everyone around her. So she had to go to the well when no one else was there because otherwise she would be shunned, she would be judged. She just didn't want to deal with it. So she would just go by herself when no one else was there. We see this beautiful picture in John 4 when Jesus walks into her place. When he walks into her world and says to her, you are loved, you are cared for. He shows her respect. He shows her dignity. He engages her in conversation way, 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 way before he even mentions her sin. He shows her respect. He shows heaven into her world. And after revealing that he is the Messiah and after he shows her that she is accepted and forgiven, she runs in town to tell everyone what happened. Notice how no longer is she ashamed of the things, but she actually runs into town and says, look at this man who knows everything that I did who knows everything about me and yet loves me anyway. Jesus brought heaven to earth for her. So she took that heaven and she brought it into her world. We see this also in John 9, one of my favorite stories. A man is born blind and the disciples are trying to figure out, like, did this guy sin? What's wrong? Why is he born blind? Why is he suffering from this this disease? And And it was so interesting because Jesus says, no, it has nothing to do with sin. This man was born blind so that I would heal him. He was born blind so that the glory of God would be revealed to him and to you at this very time. And after he puts some mud on a man's eyes and and has him go down to to wash and he comes back seeing, it's it's amazing. People start questioning him. They start saying, what what on earth is going on? We knew you. We knew you were blind. What was the deal? Like, tell us about this Jesus. Was he evil? Was he a sinner? Like, we're trying to get him. And I love his response. In John 9.25, we read one of the best witnesses of Jesus you'll ever read, one of the most eloquent. You don't need all of the arguments. You don't need anything else. I love this man's story. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. This man, Jesus, could be anyone you guys are talking about. I don't know. He didn't tell me. But what I know is that I was suffering. I was lost. I could not see. And after an encounter with this man, I now can see. I don't know what is going on in your guys' life. I don't know where you need heaven to show up in your world. But my hope is that when you encounter Jesus in a real powerful way, when your eyes are open, when you are, are loved and accepted, regardless of all the things that you have done in your past, that you would bring that same heaven to your world. My hope is that if you are healed of something or if, if the Lord brings light into a darkness for you, whatever that looks like, that it wouldn't just stay with you, but that you would take it and you would bring it into your world. And that you would be unashamed about it as they were. The woman at the well could not care less about what people knew about her anymore because she knew what Jesus knew about her. The man who was born blind couldn't articulate all the ways that Jesus healed him. Couldn't articulate who Jesus was and had probably no idea about the Trinity. He just knew that this man named Jesus showed up, healed him, and he had to tell everybody about it. He brought heaven into this man's world, and by just telling the story of what Jesus had done for him, this man brought heaven into his world. And now I know some of us need heaven on earth right now. There are things that you guys are going through that I could never imagine. 
There are things that you are going through that I know are impossible for you to handle unless you have help. My hope is that the Lord will show up in amazing ways. My hope is that the Lord will bring heaven into your world. But again, that it wouldn't just stop there, but that through your story, you would see heaven go into every corner of the world. And that leads us into the last thing I want you to learn from John. The last thing I believe that he wants to teach us through all of the things that he wrote or that God wrote through him is that one day heaven is going to come to the entire earth. One day God's presence is no longer going to be somewhere else or even just in isolated spots, but it is going to be in fullness with us. It says that God is victorious, therefore live confidently. God is victorious, therefore live confidently. I love the fact that John's first book, the Gospel of John, starts with, in the beginning. And in his last book that he wrote, the book of Revelation, it ends with what's going to happen in the end. John shows us from beginning to end, all of it points to Jesus. And no matter what point we are in the journey, whether you're at the beginning of a Christian life, whether you're at the beginning of your physical life, whether you're at the end of your Christian life or the end of your physical life, Jesus is the focus. He is the center from beginning until end. I am going to sum up the entire book of Revelation in the two words, God wins. There. I hate to disappoint you because the book of Revelation is really fun to think about and to look into and there's all kinds of cool stuff in there, but really at the end of the day, all it is focused on is showing you God wins. God's got this. I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes, but know that the book of Revelation teaches us that in the end, it is God ultimately, who has victory. We see as, as heaven is brought to earth, as, as yes, there is difficulty and strife and, and tribulation, and yes, there's all these questions that are surrounding it, but what Revelation ends with is, is the only two chapters in the entire New Testament where there's no more sin. It ends with God's dwelling place being with humanity in fullness and glory. We won't even need a sun to shine because God's presence will be our light. Can you imagine how our interactions would be with one another if there was no sin? How well we would care for one another, how well we would know each other, to know one another, be known by one another, and to be at the presence of the Lord for eternity. That's what the book of Revelation teaches us. Now, while this is a joyous day for Christians, when the king finally shows up and takes us out of exile, this is also a terrifying day for those who are far from God. This is a horrifying day from those who are far from God because finally God is going to come back. God is, is going to demand that payment be made for the sins that, that have been committed that were not covered by the blood of Christ. And what this should do is not scare us, but it should just give us some urgency. Go to your friends, go to your family, go to the people who are far from God and tell them about Jesus. Tell them about what God has done for you. Know that at one day, this world will end, and the time will run out. I hate this. Like, inside me, I'm like, oh, really? Did, like, does hell have to exist? It's like, I, I don't believe it because I want to. I believe it because that's the only place Scripture teaches. It's the only place Scripture shows me is that those who are far from God are destined to be away from his presence for eternity, and yet I feel like I shouldn't talk to that person at Starbucks about Jesus because I might look weird. I don't want to tell that family member that they need to believe in Christ for their salvation because why? They might not talk to me again? 
They might think I'm one of those weird Jesus people. I don't, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else, but my friends, like, when compared to what their eternity is, I think we all could stand to be a little awkward. I think we could all stand to come out of our comfort zone a little bit and share this message we've been given. We know that one day, all of the injustice and all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the effects of sin will be accounted for. Either that punishment will be taken by Christ on the cross for those who believe in his offer of salvation, or that punishment will be poured out on those who reject God. My friends, may this give us incredible urgency to tell those who are far from God about what he has done. So this is John. This is my friend, John the Apostle. He knew Jesus personally, and he wants each and every one of you to know Jesus too. He experienced incredible joy in the Lord and incredible hardship in the Christian life. My hope is that you will see yourself in him and see Christ magnified through his life and his writings. Hang out with John. And you will see a God of love and truth who brought small pockets of heaven into the world and will ultimately bring heaven to all of it. Now, one way, I'd like to call the worship team to come up, because one small way that we see heaven meet earth is through communion. When heaven comes down to earth, the first thing that we are told is going to happen is this glorious feast, this incredible joy at the time when we finally get to see Jesus face to face and we get to commune with one another together. Part of communion, as much as it is celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, is also looking forward to that day. Looking forward to the time when we will see Jesus face to face and have a meal with him. As much as we envy John for having breakfast with Jesus that one day, we too right now get to spend time in his presence in communion.